Good morning, church. Feeling good, feeling good, feeling good. Hey, if you got a Bible, grab it. Go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're at. As you're turning there to recap a little bit, make sure we're all on the same page. What we've been doing as a church is we've been going word by word, verse by verse through this letter that a pastor wrote to a church who had its roots in Judaism. They were Israelite Hebrew people, but as they are now discovering who Jesus is, they're realizing how Jesus is the fullness and the completion of everything that they had ever known about God. And so what you see this pastor to this church doing is encouraging them to hold on and to hang on to what they have in Jesus and who they have in Jesus. He goes to great lengths explaining Explaining to them how Jesus is truer and greater than everything that their life and their faith used to experience. The law, Jesus is greater than that. He brings fulfillment to that. The sacrificial system, he's greater than that. And he brings fulfillment to that. Angels, he's greater than that. And everything that an angel could have been, Jesus now fully is. He is helping them understand that Jesus now offers the true way to a life that is great. And he is telling them to hold fast to that. Now, what he's done for these last three chapters, which is chapter seven, eight, nine, and really a little bit into 10 today, is he's been helping them understand how Jesus brings into their lives what is a new covenant, a new promise between them and God, one that now nullifies and makes obsolete this old covenant and promise that they had made between God, that God had set up. And to briefly make sure we understand what's going on there, because this is what he's explaining in these three chapters, is the old covenant, at best, what it could do would just kind of cover up your sins, but it never really offered full cleansing. What it could do was make you learn to live out the law. And he says, no, there's a new covenant that is based on grace. This old covenant was based on your works. This new one is based on your faith. The old one was just about religion. This one is now about a relationship. This old covenant was based on systems. But this new covenant is based on you having a relationship with a savior. And so he goes to great lengths to explain that to them because essentially what he's telling them is, here is how you have salvation. Here is what this actually look at. And again, none of us in here, or probably very few of us in here, are coming from a Hebrew or Jewish background. But what we have to understand is the solution that he's giving them is a solution that is just as much one that needs to be ours as it was one that needs to be theirs. How do I get right with God? That's the big question that's on the table, and he goes to great lengths to explain that. Let's see how he does it. If you got your Bible, hopefully you're there. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going verse one till, I don't know, shot clock runs out. We'll see. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
as is written for me in the scroll of the book. Now he explains why he just quoted out of Psalm 40 here in verse eight. It says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. saying Jesus does away with the first covenant, all the things that go with that, in order to establish the second. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Verse 10 is gonna be one of our key verses. Underline that, pay attention to that. Verse 11, and every priest, he's going back to the old way now, every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, verse 14 is another key verse for us today. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come into moments like this and know that there is hope for us, but know also that that hope can only be found in you. Jesus, I know today uh, you gathered us together from all sorts of different backgrounds, from all sorts of different things that happened over the course of this week. Um, If you were to ask everybody in this room, what do they need most from you right now? We would probably have a hundred different answers, but I pray the one thing that happens today is we are able to have a moment with you that you reveal your truth to us, that as we come into a place where we encounter your word, that it would be what you tell us it is, that it would be living and active and that nobody who came in, whether they're the most seasoned saint in the room or the most desperate sinner in the room, that we would come to this place where we have an encounter with your word and it leaves us different. And so what I ask and what I beg is that, that you would take my words and that you would use them, that you would do the things through these words that I could never do by my powers of persuasion, but your Holy Spirit would melt hearts of stone so that the actual seeds of the gospel can come bear fruit so that lives look different. We need you. Father us by your word. In your name, amen. All right, got a lot of ground to cover. Let's work through it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it's key there. He's saying this is what the law could not ever do. By the same sacrifices are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We talked about this a lot last week. What he's essentially saying here is the law in the old covenant was never intended to make you perfect. We made this point very clear last week. The law at best could cover up your sins. It could not cleanse your sins. The law was essentially you spraying perfume all over you so that you felt better and smelt better, but it did not offer you a full-blown shower to where you were fully pure and fully cleansed. What he's saying Jesus' blood does is Jesus' blood offers that cleansing. The law was a shadow that pointed to the substance that is a savior, Jesus. Tracking with me so far? Okay, so he says all of this and he's pointing to them that the law wasn't 
bad. The old covenant wasn't bad, which sometimes for us in our modern churches, when we talk about a lot of stuff like this, we can go, well, that's just the old covenant or that's just you know, the you know, old Testament. And we can almost look at those things like they're bad or they were incomplete or had holes in them that made them negative. But what you gotta understand is the old covenant was whose idea? God's, how many bad ideas does he have? None, okay? So even the old covenant was supposed to be something that now we can actually see its purpose and intention, and it actually looks amazing because now we're looking at it through the lens of the new covenant and what that shadow was pointing to in the substance that was Jesus' new promise, one that was not based on works, but one that was based on faith and grace. So he continues on, he's saying, the old one can never make you perfect. And underline stuff, perfect is what we're after here. He's explaining to them how they can be made perfect, which in their mind, that was something that they knew because they read their scripture. They had the days of atonement. They did all these things. They knew they could never really get. So he's coming on the scene now and going, Jesus makes a way for you to be made perfect. So pay attention and he's gonna try to show us how we actually get on this perfection. Verse two, two through four. Otherwise, they would have, they... Not, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So he's basically giving them the argument here. So if that could have really made you cleansed, why did they have to be offered year over year? Wouldn't one have done the trick? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. He's alluding to the fact that they had, all these Jewish people, there's a day called the Day of Atonement, and that was where every year you had to go offer your animal to the priest, and the priest would go in, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holy Places on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer up an animal to be slain, blood would be shed, the animal would give its life to cover, not cleanse, the sins of the people, so that for one more 365-day period, they could be okay with God, but not Perfect. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Let's camp out on that word there. Take away sin. We sing songs about it. We just did, right? Taking away sin. We want our sins to be taken away. And on our modern American churches, we talk about sin being taken away a lot, right? And taking away sin is, is how I can get forgiven. And most of the time when we talk about sin being taken away, that's what gives us forgiveness. But here's what I need you to understand. In order for you to have forgiveness, sin doesn't just need to be evaporated. Sin has to be dealt with. And I would say it like this, before your sin can ever be forgiven, it has to be paid for. It has to be taken and dealt with. So when we hear that reality, that before I ever get forgiveness, I have to have sin be paid for, we've got to understand that that is God being just, that is God being righteous. Think about it like this, if somebody did something terrible to a member of your family, what you're not okay with is when the trial happens and you're there with them in the courtroom and the person asks the person who did, the, the judge asks the person who did the terrible thing to your family if he's sorry for what he did. And the person says, yeah, I'm sorry for what I did. And the judge just goes, all right, cool. Well, you're off scot-free. You know, try not to do that anymore. If you're the person who's had someone in your family hurt or harmed by what this person has done, who do you look at in the courtroom as the person who's now really the evildoer? 
not the person who hurt your family, you look at the judge because the unjust thing he did was to forgive somebody who did not need to be forgiven because nobody paid for what was done wrong. See, and our God is a just and righteous God, which means those sins had to be paid for. Those sins had to go somewhere. Where did they go? God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin has to be taken care of. It has to be dealt with. You don't just get to snap your fingers and be forgiven. That sin and that punishment that those sins deserve had to go somewhere. The Bible tells us very clearly that that sin went to him. And because it went to him, if our faith is in him, if our trust is in him, if our hope is in him, then we can become the righteousness of God. Again, the big question, how do I get right with God? Well, if my hope and my faith and my trust is in Jesus, if I look at his finished work on the cross and I say, I am now coming under that payment and the free gift of salvation that he offers me, now the righteousness of God is what I have. And it is also what I'm becoming. Now, this is where we gotta sit down and ask a really heartfelt question as a church. Because the reason that this pastor spends seven chapters in this book explaining to them how Jesus is now the way you get right with God is because that is the question that's really kind of plaguing all of our hearts. We know something's messed up. We know something's wrong. And if there is this higher power that created all this, how do I get right with him so that when this life is over, I'm right with him? Now, let me ask you this question. Do I really want to be right with God? Let's just Let's pretend like we're not at church. I'm sitting at a coffee house or sports bar, wherever your place of reference, wherever you wanna go, your living room, who cares? We're sitting down, we're talking about this. Not in a room full of people, not in a church, not in this context where you don't feel like this is a safe place to be honest. We gotta ask this question. Do I really want to be right with God? Now, in our words, it's really easy to, you know, again, because we're at church and all, to be like, for sure. I totally want to be right with God. Why would I not? And I don't want a lightning bolt to strike through the roof and hit me. So I'm going to say yes in my head right now. Now, what we say and what we do sometimes don't add up. All the married people say amen. So let's take this away from what you would just say at church and let's put this in reality as what you actually do with your life. If I was to follow you around without you knowing it, which would be weird, I don't have time for that kind of stuff. But if I was, somebody was to follow you around and videotape all the things that you did through the course of your life, what would it say based off of what you said, the clothes you picked out, what you bought online, where you spent your time, how you talked to your kids, how you talked to your spouse, how you worked or didn't. Would those things say that what you really want is to be right with God? Or would they say something different? Because again, we can judge what we intend and we can judge what we would say at church, but we have to be people who actually look at our real lives and know that 
when, <laughs> when we stand before God, he's not gonna base that on, on like, you know, how did you feel about me on Sunday from 10.30ish to you know, 12.30? No, he's looking at our lives and, and the totality of our lives and what they showed to be true and false. And so does our lives actually show that we really want to be right with God or do our lives show that we want money? We wanna be rich. Or do our lives show that we just want everybody to get along? Do our lives show that what we really want is just everybody to know how important I am? Do our lives show that what I really want is just to not be lonely anymore? What do you really want? And do you really not based off of just what you would say today, but based off of what your actions look like over the course of this week and based off of that deep motivation in your heart, do you really wanna be right with God? And a great, another thing to kind of bonus material here, if you have not figured out what is that thing in your life that is competing the most with your desire to be right and know right and experience your righteousness and your right relationship with God, if you haven't pinpointed what is that thing that is the biggest competitor to that, please begin to ask Jesus to show you that and it won't take him long. So our question, do I really wanna be right with God? What do I really want? Is where we can now begin to jump back into this passage and go, oh, okay, he's gonna show me with, together with the Hebrew church, what does it actually, actually look like to understand righteousness? What does it actually look like to understand being made right with God and knowing that that's not just something I'm going to in the near distant future, but that's actually something that I can experience the joy of knowing I'm right with God right now. So he walks them through that this way. He's gonna circle back to the Hebrew system of sacrificial offerings and he quotes Psalm 40 right here to explain why the sacrificial system was insufficient. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he's quoting Psalm 40, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. So God from the very beginning has not really been super into the fact that you could bring the best, most spotless, most nice, most expensive things to him and lay that down at the altar. What God has been more concerned about as opposed to what was laid down at the altar he was more concerned about the heart of the one who was laying it down. But a body you have prepared for me, this is Psalm 40 prophesying that Jesus was to come. A body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. And then I said, this is still quoting Jesus here, um, prophesied through Psalm 40. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That is written in the scroll of the book. So I'll explain it a little bit more in verse eight and nine. He says, when he said above, what he just wrote, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings or burnt offerings and sin offerings because, again, he's explaining this. These are offered according to the law. All those different sacrifices and offerings, the law made you have to do those things. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, talking about the first covenant, this first thing, which was kind of their way of thinking. How do I get right with God? I live out the first covenant. I obey all God's rules and all God's commandments. And then because I do this, I earn God's favor. Because I do good for God, he's good with me. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The second, when he's talking about the second, he's talking about this new covenant that finds its fulfillment, which the old covenant was pointing to, but now finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He's gonna explain that specifically here in verse 10. And by that will, the will of the one 
who told the son to offer up his body. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So by that sacrifice, not of a blood of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of the son, we have now been sanctified through that offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Now, we have got to be people who don't skip over big words in the Bible, who look forward to our fourth graders, fifth graders, or even younger kids coming up to us and going, Daddy, what does it mean to be sanctified? And us go, not going, let me text Pastor Trent, or let me, you know, your uncle has an MDiv. Let me see what he says. Listen, if we have been in church for longer than 30 minutes, like we have got to understand this because understanding what sanctification is, is, is so key to us understanding what we have in Christ and who Christ is to us. So I want to try to do my best to explain this to you in a way that is, is simple enough for all to grasp us and able to be able to grasp it enough to pass it down to the people who need it next from us. Sanctify, what this means is to make holy. It's to set apart for the sake of accomplishing God's perfect purpose. When you read the word sanctify in your New Testament in the Greek, it's this word hagios, which is really kind of our, even our same word for holy. This is this idea that I'm taking something and I'm setting it apart to be used for its divine purpose. Uh, the illustration that I've used with you guys before is I've held on stage a, a giant log and then a baseball bat. And at any point in time, someone who wants to make a baseball bat has got to go to the forest, cut down the tree and say, I want this to become a tool that someone can hit a baseball with. The moment he chops that down, takes it from the forest, that piece has now become sanctified. Now, there is no, not even Babe Ruth himself or Ronald Acuna or Matt Olson could take the log and just start hitting home runs with it. Even though it has been sanctified, it enters into the process of sanctification. It has been set apart, yes, but a process is now initiated that turns it into what the master intended and saw that it could become when he chose it, when he pulled it out of the circumstances it was in, set it apart so it could be used for what he created it to be used for. He then enters it into the process of sanctification, which is the ongoing process of working out the salvation that Jesus has worked in the ongoing process of working out the salvation that Jesus has worked in. Now, is that another word that was big in there? Salvation. I know I've shown you guys this before, but sometimes people only come to church like one time a month. So I'm gonna go back to this to make sure we're all on the same page with our salvation with what is really happening here. That we're actually Christians who have doctrine. I love that people are taking pictures of the screen. Way to go. Uh, this is great. This is how you can explain this to your kids when they ask you these questions. Well, well, well give me a second. You know? Salvation occurs at the three parts of you. You're not just a body who happens to have a soul. You're a soul who happens to have a body and you also have a mind. The three parts of you are your spirit, your soul, and your body. The spirit is the eternal part of you. That's the part of you that's gonna spend an eternity in heaven or hell. That is the of God. When, God, when the Bible tells us we are creating the image and likeness of God, that's that spirit. Now, you also have a soul. Oftentimes, the Bible refers to this as maybe your heart or your mind or your soul. These are those things that encapsulate your operating system, what makes you tick, where your emotions and your motives come from. This is your soul, and you are saved at a soul level along with a spirit level, and then also you're saved on a body level. I don't really have to explain that one. We all understand what our bodies are. Now, 
you're also saved at the three parts of time, the past, the present, and the future. And I believe these occur at these different levels. So think about our spirit. This is where, when salvation happens in our life, this is where I am saved. This is where salvation occurs in a moment. And the key word here is I am justified. Justification occurs. The gavel falls down when I am now in Jesus receiving this salvation. And in that moment, I cannot be any more justified before God than I am right there at the moment of faith. I am saved from the past and the penalty of my sin. My sin deserved death, but I'm justified under the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in that moment, I am saved. Now, not only am I saved and justified at the mind level, at the, at the soul level, this is where the process of sanctification is taking place. And this is happening right now in the present. For everybody in the room, the sanctification process, if you're in Jesus, is happening now. For every person who's in Christ in the room, yes, you are saved, but right now, you are in the process of being saved as your mind, your emotion, your will, and your character and motives are all being conformed into Christ's now. This is why we see people get baptized and they don't just fly out of the water, just, hello, everyone. Just quoting, just quoting scripture, just Jesus floating around to everybody. That's not what happens. There's a process, of sanctification that has to happen. Now, from your body, this is where there's salvation that will occur in the future. There will come a moment in time where you, all of us, will be saved from these bodies, these wretched bodies we have that are falling apart. There will come a time where our body will be completely saved, where it will be restored, brought anew. And this is, we will be in glorification. We will be in the presence of no sin, never, ever again, because that full salvation. So at this very moment, if you're in Christ, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And the salvation occurs and it frees us from the three parts of sin as well. From the spirit side, we are freed from the penalty of sin. My soul, which was doomed for hell, the penalty of my sin, Bible told us very clear from the very beginning, the wages of sin is death. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. I'm freed from that penalty. And I'm given eternal life in Christ if I'm with him. Now for the very present moment, if I have received salvation in the present right now, and this is what we fail to lean into so much in our life. Like most of us live our Christian life like this middle category of our soul, our present, and us being saved, sanctification, and being free from the power of sin. Most of us live our lives like this middle category of our salvation does not even exist. And this is why so many times we live lives that just feel useless purposeless, devoid of any sort of meaning because we miss out on what is the reality of sanctification because we're so caught up in or either just resting in the fact that, hey, I'm saved. I raised my hand at that conference when I was 13. I'm fully saved. And one day I'm gonna go on into glory. I'll fly away. And we sing it and we're hyped. But what about right now? Well, right now, something should be happening where I'm actually freed up from the power of sin in my life. If I'm in Christ and this sanctification process is happening, then I no longer desire to do the things I used to do. And now I desire to do the things that Christ would lead me to do. The power of sin, that old addiction, that old habit, that no longer has reign on my life, I'm actually freed from sin's power. 
to make me want the things that I know I should not want. So this, this is salvation. But still, when we come to this idea of sanctification in our verse today, it still makes us kind of have this one big hanging question. It says, and by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the question, again, I'm trying to teach you how to study the Bible and the question you should ask when you read, the question that you should ask when you see this is how does Jesus offering his body sanctify me? How does that sanctify me? That he offered his body, blood was shed, he gave his life, he resurrected. How does that actually be something that sanctifies me? It sets me apart, it makes me holy. It enters me into this process where perfection is beginning to come throughout my life. How does that happen? How does Jesus' death, his offering his life, actually become something that sanctifies me? Best thing I do to explain to you big Bible questions is take you to Bible verses. Galatians 2.20. How does Jesus' offering sanctify me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what we all like to think about when it comes to Christianity is the fact that we're gonna resurrect with Jesus and we're gonna go to where he's at. But what we have to understand is it is not just co-resurrection. We also experience co-crucifixion, that my old life is now death and buried And the life I now live is not me trying to be like Jesus, which is why many of you in this room, you would have made killer Hebrews. You would have made an amazing Jew because most of your faith has just been about trying to be good and not do bad things. You would have made an amazing Hebrew, but you might just make a terrible Christian if your faith is contingent on what you do and not the finished work of Jesus. See, he says, my old life has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I'm still here. I live by faith in the son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. Now, let's bump into some hard realities. If you're really one of those people in the room who goes like, I'm a Christian and I'm in Christ and I'm secure in my salvation then what this verse tells us is Jesus lives in us. Now, there's some big implications on that. Imagine you go and you put 200 non-Christians in a room and you ask them, think about the Christians you know in your life. Again, room full of 200 non-Christians. Think about the Christians you know in your life Does it look like Jesus is living through them? Think about all the Christians you know. Does it really look like Jesus is living through them? Let's make it personal. Does your life feel like Jesus is living through you? Because if if this is what the Bible says is actually true, then, then we should look different. Now, track with me. What I'm not saying is you're saved by your works. The Bible makes it very clear that we are saved by faith alone. But what I'm trying to tell you is while we are saved by faith alone, your faith was never meant to stay alone. That a faith that saves us but doesn't begin to change us is not saving faith. We are saved by faith for sure. But you were never meant to be people who are just saved by faith that stayed alone 
alone. And guys, this, this is why people leave churches. This is why people leave Jesus. This is why people, when they hear Christians or the word evangelical, that's why they turn their nose up. It's because we said we were something, but our actions said something completely different. And listen, let me take you off the hook for a second and put churches and pastors back on the hook. Sometimes at churches, we can be so consumed with getting you wet, like getting you in the water and getting you out of that water or getting you to, everybody, eyes bowed, uh, heads bowed, eyes closed, no peeking. And everybody just raise your hand and we have this moment. I'm not picking on you if this is what happened in your life. I'm just telling you kind of what happens. And I'm, I'm, I'm letting you behind the veil of a pastor's shadow mission. I see those hands back there in the back. I see them. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. And then we feel good about ourselves because 15 people got saved that day. And we treat that moment in time like nothing else needs to happen until they die. Just do you. Have fun out there. You got your passport. And we leave out the process of sanctification. We leave out the process that they are being saved. And the world and so much of the, the carnage and confusion that we see in the world right now is due in large part because pastors, churches, and the body of Christ as whole has left this concept, this reality that we are being saved and the sanctification process should be changing us into Jesus in the school, in the workplace, in the uh, politics, that we should be Jesus in all of those places. And that's why I believe some of the reason why the world is the way it is. Because we just said, raise your hand so we can take a tally of how many people have gotten saved so we can fill the building, but never really change the life. So when we think about this sanctification and this process of heading towards Jesus' life through us, God asked this question. Was Jesus perfect? Okay, so Jesus was perfect. Track with me. And if this verse is true, there is no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives through me. And Jesus was perfect. What should I be? You can say it. Perfect. <laughs> Which <laughs> some of you in the room are like, bro, you tell me I got to be perfect. No, I'm not telling you that. The Bible is. <laughs> you absolutely have to be perfect. Why? Because perfect Jesus is living through you. Now, we're gonna get, we're gonna pack that even more because he talks about this, I'm perfect, but I'm still being sanctified. I'm perfect, but I'm moving towards perfection. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But let's, let's, let's just camp out right there before you freak out. Oh man, I, I thought I was anxious when I came to church today. I'm leaving more anxious. <laughs> if Jesus is perfect, and we've walked through this already as we navigate through Hebrews, how did Jesus become perfect? And again, let me just make sure we're all on the same page because some of you are like, well, I thought Jesus was always perfect. You're saying he became perfect? We're gonna get there in a second. Jesus was 100% for sure perfect. But Hebrews tells us 
that Jesus came and experienced life here and having walked through what he walked through, having suffered the way he suffered, having actually lived the entire human life, he became, even though he was perfect, having lived the way he lived, he became a perfect sacrifice, one that would be sufficient for our salvation. Let me show you this, because we're asking the question here, well, how in the world do I begin to experience this perfection? What is the thing the reality that makes perfection come to fruition in my own life. If you got a Bible, go to Hebrews. You should already be there. Hebrews chapter two. I want you to look at Hebrews two, verse 10. I want you to see this with your own eyes because if I just put it on screens, you'd think, oh man, he's making that stuff up. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. I love hearing pages turn. Let's go good. Okay. If Jesus lives in me and Jesus was perfect, how was Jesus made perfect? If I can understand that, I'll know how I can be made perfect and how that happens. Let's look at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I should have told you you weren't gonna like the answer. I already told you you had to be perfect. Now I'm telling you you have to suffer. But we can't wear crosses around our necks and send our kids to Christian schools and show up at Christian churches and not realize who we're worshiping. Jesus is supposed to live his life through us. And in doing so, because he's perfect, he's supposed to move us into perfection. And the Bible tells us very clearly right here, he was made perfect through what? Suffering. So how does my life get more and more like it is and more and more towards his perfection? Well, maybe, just maybe, it's the very same things that shows him being perfected. And the Bible makes that very clear that that was suffering. Now, again, I know that sounds no fun because let's go back to the very beginning. When I asked you this question, let's juxtapose this verse against that question. When I said, what do you really want? None of you, when I asked the question, what is it that you really want? were like, suffering. (laughs) We were actually on the opposite end of the spectrum, weren't we? I want peace. Like, I just want a nap. I don't really need anything. I don't want a jet ski or wealth. I want a nap. I want to to be able to sleep until I just wake up. No kids, no alarm. I just want to rest. I want a nap. See, juxtapose what Jesus says leads to perfection. The Bible makes it clear is what takes us into perfection against what you really want inside your heart. I want anything but suffering. I want comfortability, wealth if it happens, but what I really want is just to not suffer. See, friends, comfort is a slow death. The pathway to perfection in Christ, and I wish it was something else, the pathway to perfection in Christ is paved with suffering. And it's because we serve a God who put a wooden tool of torture upon his back after he had already been whipped 
and mutilated by Roman soldiers, marched up a hill called Golgotha and gave his life there on the cross and then says, if any man come after me, he must take up his cross, crucify himself and lay down his life for my sake. And if he is willing to do that, he will have found his life. He will save his life. But the one who refuses, he will miss out on life. And so let me speak for a second to the person in the room who feels like they're suffering. I'm glad you're here. And I know, man, because I've suffered. In the midst of suffering, you can feel like God has turned his back on me. God has abandoned me. God doesn't know what it's like down here. If he was a good God, why would he let this happen to me? In the midst of our suffering, it's, it's really natural and normal to feel that way and to isolate ourselves out from even Christian community to, to just withdraw and go, suffering is happening and I hate it and it's painful. Why can't things, if God is good, why is this so bad? But friend, this is what's so wild about our gospel and this is what's so different about Christianity than any other religion, than any other faith, than any other thing in the entire world. It actually tells us that in the midst of our suffering that we are being perfected. And so this means for the person in the room who's going through what feels like hell on earth is that we can actually live out what that Bible verse in the book of James actually says is real. Because we read that first chapter of James when it's like, hey, you know, rejoice, you know, count it pure joy when you face all sorts of hardships. And we read that crap of stuff, sorry, in our Bible and we want to just rip it out. Because we don't want that. And so many times we do that because we fail to realize the beauty and the suffering and know that it is, it is actually through the suffering that you are being made perfect because when you are suffering for your faith, when you are crucifying your flesh, when you're going through the crucible of life, whatever it is, whether it's infertility, whether it's loneliness, whether it's cancer, whether it's mental anxiety and depression, whatever it is, when you feel like you're going through that crucible, suffering well with Christ is what leads you to perfection. And listen, I hate to break this to you. I wish I could say otherwise. It may not be perfection that you experience until you cross over from this life into eternal life. But friend, if you're in Christ, the promise is that you will stand one day in perfection before a holy, perfect, righteous God. Suffer well and count it. That's the only way we can count it pure joy is knowing that in the same way that Jesus was perfected through suffering, he is perfecting me as well. The passage goes on. He continues to explain this whole idea of sanctification. He goes back to the, the way that the Hebrew people and Old Covenant concepts would work here. He says, and every priest would stand daily as a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, a one-time offering that take care of it all. And then he sits down and goes to rest and it begins to intercede for us, waiting until the time where his enemies should be made a footstool. In verse 14, awesome verse, he hits back in this idea of perfection and being sanctified. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, we'll leave 10, 14 right there. You still got your Bibles open. I wanna show you something. 
Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Go back up to verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. All right. In order us to understand this whole idea of sanctification, you got to understand verse 10 and verse 14. Let's look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. All right? So we have been, in verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been. Now let's look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being. In verse 10, I have been. In verse 14, I am being. What happened? I thought I was, but I'm being? What's going on? Have I been sanctified or am I being sanctified? Yes. <laughs> this is what it means. It means I'm set apart, but the process is still ongoing. To explain it in, in maybe a way that makes a little bit of sense. Um, you guys uh, know what this is right here? This is a, a Polaroid camera here. All right. Let me see if I can uh, get this thing to work the way I want it to. All right. So this is Polaroid. Now, the way I feel like maybe this will make sense to us a little bit, when God looks at us, he sees not what we are. Again, he is the, Jesus is the great sanctifier. So when Jesus sees you, he sees not what you are right now, but he sees what you could become. And he chooses to separate and take you out of that. So when God looks through the lens and sees you, he goes, I'm gonna take a picture of what you can become. And he, you know, hey, Washington's, you know, you're gonna get it, you know, get this. Okay. And salvation happens. We're developed, but not really. Like he, he's got the picture of what we can become in him. But you know, like I know that none of us just go, well, that's not Jesus. And that's not perfect. I'm done. And walk away from it. See, see God in, this, in a very similar way, he understands that we don't understand this, that development has to take place. That when we've got this, we've got to do kind of two things. We've got to shake it, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Um, <laughs> you know what to do. Um, y'all didn't think I listened to Outcast. Um, I did. I don't anymore. I got saved. Um, but we've got, to let, we've got to shake this thing and we've got to wait. And this process of waiting for it to develop into what God sees it could be is what sanctification is. And so what I need you to do is to realize the thing that you're looking at your life to become is not some better version of yourself. That's one of the biggest, and I'll go there, stupidest lies you could ever believe. But it's one of the lies that you're being told at an alarming rate right now in 2023. Be the best version of you. No, the best version of you will burn in hell. Because it's you. Again, if you want to be the best version of you, go just be a not messianic, just go be a regular old Jew. Or you could go be a Muslim and be the best version of you. You could go be Hindu. And if you want to be the best version of you, go find a new faith. Christianity is not about you being a better version of you. Christianity is about Jesus moving and working through you. It is about you dying and him living through you. It's not a new version of you. It's him, period. 
And so in order for us to be people who understand, how am I per- perfect? Like by one offering, he has perfected me, but at the same time, I am being sanctified. I've got to understand this concept in Christianity. You've heard me say this before. It's the concept of already, but not yet. It's what I have and what I don't have. It's what I have and what I'm moving into. I already am perfect, but I'm being perfected. It's the already and the not yet. Now, just a couple of quick thoughts here. In regards to our faith, in regards to being able to fill out and live out this perfection, to know that this is already something that I am, but it's not something that I have. What you have to understand is that at the root of all of this is a relationship with Jesus. And yes, this sanctifying work is something that he does. So you go like, okay, this is this miraculous work of Jesus living through me. Is it Jesus doing the work or is it me doing the work? Well, Paul in this one passage goes, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, it sounds like it's kind of my job. But then you can take the whole rest of scripture and it goes, this is clearly something that Jesus is doing. So, so what is it? It's both. It's Jesus being the one who gives you the power, but it's you walking in that power. And the key at that relationship is you understanding that your best intentions of being the follower of Christ that you wanna be really matter very little, your intentions. Because man, with great intentions, we show up to church. With great intentions, we get to the parking lot and we go, hey, this week, this is what I'm gonna do. We leave small group gatherings with great intentions. But what I'm trying to explain to you in regards to this relationship with Jesus and seeing his perfection come out of your life, your intentions don't matter. What matters way more than our intentions is the investments that we make. Because I could say to my wife, you know, I love you so much and I, you're just so great and everything else. And, and, and I intend for us to have just an amazing marriage where we just sit in rocking chairs and just talk about the good old days and they love the days we're in and we just ride out into the sunset holding our hands and we just, just carry on to Jesus one day. And those can be my intentions. I can talk about my intentions to her. But if I don't make investments into our relationship, my best intentions matter little to none. And that's a lot of how our relationship with Jesus can be. We intend to do all sorts of good things for Jesus. We intend to not say those cuss words in traffic. We intend to honor our wife and do those things that we should be doing. But if there aren't investments, if we don't invest the time to be in his word, if we don't invest the time to sacrifice and lay ourselves down, if we're not willing to allow our flesh to die off, our best intentions will fail. I'll end with this. It's a quote from my favorite um, Christian author. His name's Dallas Willard. I try to read it slow so maybe we can all get it. All of his books are ones you have to, I, I tried to audible a few of them. It's absolutely impossible. You gotta read it with a pen and think and chew. He said this about this idea of intention and investment leading to transformation. He says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important. That's why everybody in the room said, I do wanna be right with God. He says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not commit to the life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the failure of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. We intend what is right, 
but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. What is the opposite of that? And one simple word, the opposite of avoiding the life that would make your life the way you actually deeply inside of your heart want it to be is sanctification and living out the salvation that Jesus has put into you. So today, as we close out and receive communion, I want you to see that in this relationship that he's navigating you with, he has already made the biggest and most substantial investment. He has not given a 10% tithe of himself to you. He has given all of himself to you. He has invested all into this relationship by giving his life sacrificially on a cross and let the resurrection be the receipt that the check cleared and he was a worthy payment. He was a true investment. And now we look to our own lives and go because, not in spite of, but because of Jesus, your investment, what you paid for me, Here's what you call out of me, my whole life. And so today, as you receive communion, hold in your hand a cup and a cracker that represents a whole life given for you. And even though you may walk out of here and not be able to live what you're getting ready to say out, as you see what he's given for you, his whole life, I dare you to pray, Jesus, as you gave your whole life for me, I give my whole life for you. And you won't get it perfect. There'll be times where you try to steal it back. But continue to pray, continue to believe, continue to know my whole life is yours, the good, the bad, it all. You're the king, it's all yours. Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts as we commune with you. Pray that by the power of the gospel that you would do the things that only you can do. That to the person who's lost and wondering today that they would find salvation in you, that you would Allow them to turn over the reins of their life and their attempts at being good enough and realize maybe once and for all that they never could be, but that that is gloriously okay. here today who wants to surrender their whole life to you, to be baptized, to surrender again today to a Savior and surrender it all to you.